0: Good morning. good morning. And as we begin class with prayer this morning, we have a prayer request. Um, some, most, most, of you here know Steve Morris, a regular class member. He went in the hospital this week, had a pacemaker placed, supposed to go home today, which is good. Everything went well, but he just asked to be remembered in our prayers. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for, for the way you've designed your kingdom to run, for your mercy, for sending Jesus as our Savior. We want to lift up Steve to you today, and we want to thank you that the procedure that he had already went well, and that it is working, and that you will continue to watch over him and provide him with continued good health as, as he loves you and loves this message, and open opportunities for him to share wherever he goes. Be with us as we study your word today, that we will come to know your plan to heal and restore us to your image more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson uh, number seven in the quarterly uh, Gospel in Galatians. The title is The Road to Faith. And this week's lesson is based on Galatians 3, 21 through 25, so I thought we'd start by reading those verses from the NIV. And this is what those verses say in the NIV. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in jesus christ might be given to those who believe before faith came we were held prisoners by the law locked up until faith should be revealed so the law was put in charge to lead us to christ that we might be justified by faith now that faith has come we are no longer under the supervision of the law can somebody tell me what that means (laughs) so first question to what law is paul referring in this passage Moral or ceremonial or both? Both. Both, that's correct. He's referring to both, but primarily of the moral law of the Ten Commandments. What was the purpose in this passage, do you hear, of the law? Is the law in this passage described as the cure for the sin problem, the treatment? The source of, of life and health and healing and salvation. Is, is it coming from the law? No, it's not that. What does it mean that if it's not that, we will have to look for some other purpose? What does it mean, prisoner? He uses this language. We're held prisoner by sin, or prisoner of sin. How is the world a prisoner of sin? Prisoner.
1: Because we're born in you know? it. We had no nothing to say. I mean, we were born into sin.
0: Did you realize you're a heretic?
1: <laughs>
0: no, I, I'm just teasing. That was that was a joke, folks. Uh, I, I'm just wanting you to hear the language I hear all the time. We were born in sin, which means you're saying we have a condition. That's right. We have no- but prisoners don't have a condition. They have a legal problem. They're condemned by a judicial magistrate that puts them in a legal prisoner. They're imprisoned. You see the difference between... Being a prisoner because the court says it versus we have a condition. Sure. Yeah, but you're correct. Actually, we, this is that we're imprisoned by sin because of the condition itself. What does it mean to be held prisoner by the law? Because both, both are said in this. Prisoner by sin and prisoner by the law. Does it mean we are criminals? And the law sentences us to death and we are criminals on death row awaiting the ruling authority to execute us and inflict the death penalty except for those who claim the legal payment of Jesus who paid the legal debt penalty. Other, other than that, we're, we're criminals on death row held prisoner by the law. Is that what it means? Do you know what I said is commonly taught in Christianity? Is that what Paul is saying here, though? If it's true that we're criminals on death row held imprisoned by the law which were sentenced to death, if if that's our position, in that system, what would be the cause of death? God, that's right. God would be the executioner, the cosmic executioner. Death, in this view, comes out from God. And then we can understand that we need to create theologies to somehow manage God. We need to propitiate his wrath. We need to turn away his anger. We need to uh, uh, influence him through a a legal payment so he has a legal loophole so he doesn't have to kill us. I mean, we're doing something to manage God in this way because if God just had some anger management classes, we could live eternally in sin because in this view, there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God who will kill you for it. Do you see the problem in that type of thinking? This is penal thinking. This is penal substitution thinking. This is the views when you think God's law functions like our laws. You break a rule, we have to have a court, somebody has to find guilt or innocence, and then there has to be proper punishment supplied. When we think through that lens, we come up with these very gross views of God. But they're not reality. That's not how God's universe runs. At best, they're a metaphor. At best, they're a metaphor. At worst, they're a lie. In reality, justification is simply setting humanity right with God again. That's what justification is. Setting humanity right with God again. Fixing what is wrong. Putting back to God's original design what is no longer in harmony with his original design. That's what it is. So here's the same passage that I read from the NIV from The Remedy. Is the written law then somehow in opposition to the promises of God? Of course not. The written law was simply a tool to diagnose our sickness and lead us to God for healing. If the written law could somehow cure the infection of selfishness and promote life then healing would certainly have followed the giving of the law but scripture is clear all humanity is infected with selfishness and is imprisoned by this terminal condition it is by trust that we experience the only cure the one promised, jesus christ who was given to humankind as the remedy to this terminal condition before christ came we were quarantined by the written law, law, restrained from continual self-destruction until Christ procured the only true cure. The written law was provided as a safeguard to protect us and lead us to Christ, the great physician, so that we might be restored to unity with God by trust in and partaking of Christ. Now that trust in God has been restored and we are set right in heart, mind, and character, and again practice God's methods, we no longer need the law to diagnose our condition or lead us back to God. Now, after our lesson, where we kind of talked about these things two, three weeks ago, lesson four, somebody posted um, a question to me, which says the following. After reading the notes for lesson four, it seems that you are thinking like Catholics. Protestants understand the grace of justification as purely a legal declaration. For Rome, justification is a process of inner renewal, something that happens in us. What? This was posted. It was a question. Now, this is a a reasonable, understandable concern to raise, especially since all Christianity has been indoctrinated with the idea that there's only two views of justification, the Catholic view and the Protestant view. And it's a binary choice. It's either or. That's how they've been. most Christians have been indoctrinated. And that these two groups have argued for over 500 years back and forth their two views. And so the whole world is kind of conditioned that it's either this or it's that. Either or. Either or binary thinking. But this gives us an opportunity. I want to thank the person who sent this because it gives us an opportunity to actually engage reason, look at evidence, and come to a sound understanding. First question, though, is when you hear stuff like this, what is your initial response? Hopefully, hopefully, you examine the method of the argument first, before we actually get into the details and substance of the argument. Did you notice that the method of the argument was to pit this view against the Catholic view? Now, why did they pit this view against the Catholic view? Well, what's, the, what's the intent of that type of a presentation? To elevate one view or to yeah. mean the other view. Yeah. Is it to suggest speaking to a Protestant group who have been protesting against things within the Catholic system, that if the Catholics hold it, it can't be right. Therefore, you, you, if you're holding it, you need to repent and go back to the Protestant view. In other words, the basis of the argument is who holds the, holds the view. Hmm. Well, this is the same argument made by those who are anti-Trinitarian, who don't believe in the Trinity. Well, the Catholics hold that view. It came from Catholicism. Uh, therefore, it can't be right because the Catholics hold it. You shouldn't believe in the Trinity. This is a very weak way to make your point. The demon possessed often said about Jesus, we know who you are, thou son of the most high God. Would we suggest because the demons say this, we should argue the opposite? He is not the son of the most high God. (laughs) You see, this is the type of logic you get when you simply base your arguments on opposing a group that you don't agree with. Now, we can evaluate who said it, and who said it can cause us to have a certain level of concern, suspiciousness, skepticism, skeptic coming from the Greek word scop- scoptic, where we get microscope and telescope to examine carefully, so we can be skeptical and examine carefully. But at the end of the day, do we simply base our opinion because, well, they said it, I'm not going to agree with them, or do we say, how about some actual evidence of the position? Let's look for some actual evidence here, Okay. So that's that's where we're going to go next. We're going to look at evidence. The very simplistic, high overview of the difference between the historic Lutheran-Calvin view on justification by faith and the Catholic view is this. Protestant view, justification is an act of faith, accepting the legal accounting, declaring, crediting, imputing to the sinner's account the sinless righteousness of Jesus without any work on the sinner's part while the sinner remains just as sinful as before. It is a point event in time and cannot be undone except by the loss of faith. It is a legal declaration, no change in the person whatsoever. The Catholic view of justification, like this, a change in the inner man accomplished by the grace of God plus the works of the believer. Thus, it, it is a process happening over time, not a point in time. In this view, the sinner is born with original sin and the sinner can be moved from a state of condemnation to a child of God justified only by baptism by the church and later by faith plus the sacraments. Thus, the sacraments of baptism, penance, and mass are controlled by the church and are gateways to justification. First, that was true. Historically, the Roman church had come to the point in history where they held people hostage but to the authority of the church institution Salvation was dependent not only on a trust relation with Jesus alone, but a combination of faith in Jesus and works controlled by the church to include penance, baptism, mass, indulgences, and some other things. Further, salvation could be attained through purging the wickedness after death in a place called purgatory. And in purgatory, the wickedness would be purged from them and people would be launched into heaven. And you could shorten the time that your deceased loved one spent being purged by giving money to the church and you would get a writ and that writ would diminish the amount of time your loved one had to be purged and they could be launched into heaven sooner. Martin Luther and the reformers saw the corruption in this system and protested against it. Protestantism, protestations. In so doing, they moved people toward a better understanding. However, however, their understanding and teaching was still predicated on human-imposed law construct, already deeply rooted in the Catholic system. Thus, while it was moving away from the institutional authoritarianism and arbitrary works, it did not actually come to teach what true justification actually is. Instead, it set up another theological construct based on a false law. Truth is unfolding. Those who cling to the penal substitutionary view of the early reformers cling to a view which freed the reformers from the domination of the institutional system. However, it did not free them from the domination of selfishness and fear, nor the view of God as the inflictor of punishment for sin. That view is still held. The penal legal view has a form of godliness, but no power. This is what Paul was prophesying about. Now, I'm going to read to you from the online Catholic Encyclopedia, which is going to help us see from their side of it the difference between the Protestant view of justification and the Catholic view of justification. What, then, is the part assigned to faith and justification? According to Luther and Calvin also, faith that justifies is the infallible conviction that God, for the sake of Christ... Will no longer impute to us our sins, but will consider and treat us as if we were really just and holy, although in our inner selves we remain just the same sinners as before. In the Protestant system, however, remission of sin is no real forgiveness, no blotting out of guilt. Sin is merely cloaked and concealed by the imputed merits of Christ. God no longer imputes it, whilst in the reality it continues under cover its miserable existence till our hour of death. Thus there exist in man, side by side, two hostile brothers, as it were, the one just and the other unjust, the one saint and the other sinner, the one child of God, the other slave of Satan, and this without any prospect of conciliation between them. Thus we find in one of Luther's letter to Melanchthon in 1521 the following sentence. Be a sinner and sin boldly but believe and rejoice in Christ more strongly, who triumphed over sin, death, and the world. As long as we live, we must sin. Who said that? Luther. Martin Luther, the reformer. Why? Because in his view... Justification is a legal process separate and disconnected from an actual experience that, that frees you from the domination of the carnal nature. You don't get a new heart and right spirit in justification. You simply are declared or treated based on the merits of Christ in a legal courtroom in heaven that the judge treats you as if you're sin free even though you're not. We now come to the different, one more paragraph from, from the Catholic Encyclopedia. We now come to the different states in the process of justification. The Council of Trent assigns the first and most important place to faith, which is styled the beginning, foundation, and root of all justification. The process of justification, Protestant view, it's a point in time. As soon as you accept the legal payment, it is an act of a legal declaration. You are now justified in a legal court system in heaven, and God declares you to be perfectly sinless, even though you're just as corrupt as the day you got there. So God lies, basically. That's the Protestant view. In the Catholic view, it's not a point in time. It's a process that begins. The process of justification is then brought to a close. It begins with faith, but is not completed until it's brought to a close by the baptism of water. Inasmuch as by grace of this sacrament, the catechumen, that's the human who is being instructed, is freed from sin and its punishment, notice repentance and its punishment, and is made a child of God. The same process of justification is repeated in those who by mortal sin have lost their baptismal innocence with this modification, however, that the sacrament of penance replaces baptism. So you have to have faith and do penance in order to be justified. It's a combination of trust God and your works. Now, do we in this class teach either of those two views? No. This is the binary thing that Satan wants, and this happens, this happens all the time in this class. People at level four will always project their view. If you're not this, they only have one other option. You must be that. No. This this is the trap, the classic trap. This happened when the Protestants and Catholics argue over the Eucharist. It's, it's, uh, it's, I have wrote a blog on this. It's in my new book, but there's a video about this. The the, the, Euchar- the the Catholic will say, every time a sinner confesses sin and takes Mass, then Jesus presents his sacrifice to the Father to pay for the sin that has just been confessed. The Protestant says, Oh, no, no, no. When we confess our sins to Jesus, Jesus goes to him and presents his merits to the Father, reminding the Father that he had previously paid for the sins 2,000 years ago at the cross so the Father won't have to punish us. This is the argument between the Catholic and the Protestant: Offering the sacrifice at that time? Oh, reminding him it's already been paid. Both of them missing the point entirely they have an angry God who must inflict punishment and needs the blood of his son, a human sacrifice, in order for him not to lash out and kill us. They're both worshiping the same God. This is the corrupt system of the penal human law construct. The same problems happening over justification, both built on the legal human and law construct. The Protestant position grew out of the burdensome religion in which works weighed people down and there was never any sense of peace. And so when they had formed their position, they wanted to have all works off of them. And so they, they came to this belief of a legal declaration that gave them great peace. It's nothing I can do to make me righteous. Well, there's truth in that. That freedom. That peace
2: doesn't last though.
0: That peace doesn't last though. Yes, you're constantly recycling through it. And this ultimately since you can't lose that salvation except through loss of faith, as long as you remain faithful, you're once saved, always saved. You can't be lost. Your salvation secure, and people rest secure in a legal salvation procured because all sins, past, present, and future, were placed on Christ at the cross and punished by God at the cross. So, even if you're doing wicked stuff today, you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife, you're murdering people, you're molesting kids. As long as you've accepted the blood payment of Jesus and you've been, de- you're, de- you're declared to be perfectly righteous and holy. But the Adventist church doesn't
2: believe in one saved, always
0: saved. No, the Adventist church uh, would say that you, that after those sins you just committed, those sins aren't yet uh, even though they were paid for by Christ on the cross 2000 years ago before you committed them, you don't get the legal benefit of it until after you've committed the sin, you go and ask God to make that up legal application. So you have to repent again and ask for the legal application and legal application at that time gets paid to your account and then you're again redeclared to be set right with God and you're rejustified or or you know Legally imputed to not be a sinner, but if you if you don't go and repent, and you don't go and, and you've committed some sin, and you forgot to bring it up before God. Well, that remains on the record book, and you'll be punished for it. So now your salvation is based on your good memory. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I, you know, when you were in second grade, you you uh, you you coveted a, another child's uh, uh, little uh, matchbox car, and you stole it. <coughs> and then through, because you were going down that path you stole other things through life and, and then at age 19 or 20 you get arrested for, 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 for theft and you go to prison and, and you meet a p- Christian prison ministry and you, and you for the first time give your heart to the Lord and, and, you're, and you really let the spirit come in and you have a new heart and right spirit like David you, you live your life in that one, honest, other-centered, giving um, you, you, would, you would pay a little extra on your taxes to, to avoid even looking like you're trying to cheat on something you, you really are an honest person but you never remembered that little car <laughs> You didn't ask for forgiveness for that in the Adventist view of this legal view. If you didn't request it, you didn't bring it up, it remains in the books and heaven and judgment. I know you have a heart like, like my son. Now I know I've been renewed in the inner man. I know you love others more than self, but unfortunately you forgot about the car, I'm gonna to have to kill you. <laughs> Justice requires you pay the price. Well, for you deserve. But but you but but since you got all these others, it will only be a microsecond of pain and then you're gone. You see, this is this is the traditional penal view within the Adventist church. It's also corrupt. So the Protestants took away the sacraments, the works of humans, but did not take away the false law, which causes people to think justice is God punishing. Thus justification is addressing the punishment problem. Further, the Protestants actually set up a system in which people are told that they're set right with God without any internal change in their heart at all. Thus they will expect to continue in sin right up until the moment of translation. This is a form of godliness with no power. And you know this, you hear it all, I've heard it my entire life. i heard it in all walks of Protestant Christianity. There's no victory over sin. You keep sinning, you just keep sinning, you just, just as long as you repent from it. But there's no victory. Nobody's perfect. And you see it over and over. There's not even an expectation of a transformed life. The Catholic view realizes change is needed to happen in the person, but teaches the change comes about by the works of the person and the powers of the sacrament of the church in conjunction with faith. Thus, the Catholic view merges justification and sanctification and the sacramental works. The traditional Protestant view does realize change isn't in part of the salvation process. It's just separated from justification. It's called sanctification. There's no change in justification. The change comes after you're justified in the Protestant view. Our view is that the species human was set right, justified with God in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus accomplished in his humanity by, by what Jesus accomplished in his humanity. That's, that's how the human species was sent, right? By his life, his victorious life, his death, his resurrection. Because of Jesus, there is a perfect, sinless human being, a descendant of Adam, who did not need to be delivered from his personal sin, but who by the exercise of his own human abilities developed a perfect, sinless human character, thus restoring the species back to God's original intent. That's how the race known as human, homo sapiens, were put right with God in the individual person of Jesus Christ. The species was healed, put right, set right, justified first in the person of Jesus by his sinless life, selfless death, which destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, as it says in scripture. And re- thus it resulted in his resurrection and humanity perfect and sinless. But in so doing, he procured the remedy to save all other humans who would give their consent to God and allow him to heal them. We are only saved through what Christ achieved. We are healed. We are restored. In our experience, our personal experience, our personal justification, how does that take place? What's that process? We must first partake of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, metaphorically, we must partake of his body, which is his flesh, which symbolically is the bread. And as bread and flesh to the body become the molecules, the building blocks of the actual materials that your body is broken out of. Jesus is the word made flesh. Word made flesh. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. We must ingest into our minds the truth that Jesus has brought to us because the truth will set you free. And Satan is the father of lies okay and so as we ingest or partake of jesus first the lies that we believed about god are displaced and we are then one to trust the natural heart what's the natural heart of the sinful human beings attitude towards god Is enmity to god does that mean we trust him or don't trust him no. we don't trust him and thus we must first partake of the word the flesh the bread metaphorically, the truth, and the truth wins us to trust, and the heart is changed. And it says in Romans 4, 4, Abraham trusted God and was then recognized as righteous. Justification is partaking of the truth about Jesus, about God that Jesus revealed, such that it wins us to genuine trust in our heart, which has been living in fear, which has been trying to save self, which has been hiding behind the fig leaves of our own devisings, come to the point where we surrender and open ourselves to God. I trust you. That heart is set right. That's justification. And once we open the heart, Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our heart. The spirit takes what Christ has achieved, his victory, his perfect character. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We write the law on the heart and mind. We get the mind of Christ. We have circumstances of the heart. But this is only happening in hearts who trust God. The hearts that don't trust God, this doesn't happen in. And so justification is setting the heart, which is enmity, right with God. And sanctification is healing all the damage in those hearts who trust him. We get new motives, new desires, new initiatives. Yes?
3: Uh, for me, this... Uh, it- it seems so more transforming of the heart, it's more of a relationship that God has always been talking about, is that you're looking to evidence and reality around you that all of us as humans partake of. I mean, what do seven billion humans have in common? They're human beings. And so it, it makes me think of how we'll all be unified, not by religion, not by, um, you know, skin color, not by certain beliefs, but our relationship to a God, where we see evidence of his creation around us, and we we realize that we're our unity is in our identity.
0: They will know you are my disciples by your Sabbath day worship. <laughs> by your baptism by immersion. No, by your dietary plan. They will know you're my disciples by your and love only comes from hearts that have been transformed. And transformation only happens in hearts who trust God. And thus we must be one to trust, which is the truth. We take the bread. and the bread of heaven, we take partake of the truth. The truth are building blocks that, that form our ideas, our beliefs, our attitudes. That brings us to a point we trust as we open the heart. That's the bread part. Then he pours his love into our hearts. We become partakers of his character, his life, and the metaphor for the life of Christ is the blood. The life is in the blood, and thus we partake the wine. These things have no power. They're just symbols to teach us in symbolic form that we need to internalize the love, character, methods of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes that and reproduces. We actually get new desires and attitudes. But all this is a gift from God. We don't earn it. We don't create it. We don't procure it. We receive it by faith and participate by trust in God. There are not sacraments or works in creating the remedy. There's no human effort in creating the remedy. It was procured solely and exclusively by Jesus Christ, singly and alone. There's nothing we can add to it.
2: Thank God. (laughs) Yes, yes. Just a question. Yeah. Um, How does it work? How do you believe it works with, um, like I know that people who haven't known Christ specifically, who haven't trusted God, you know, like consciously, um, that there's going to be a lot of them that, are in the kingdom, how do you, like, I'm, I'm not sure how to reconcile when it's about trusting God, and there's a lot of people out there who, like, hate on God because of the way a lot of Christians have represented God, so they turn away, and they don't want to have anything to do with them. But they could still be responding to the Holy Spirit, yep. however, how, like, I'm confused in if they're running from God, but they're they're trusting the Holy Spirit maybe to transform them and make them loving people. But if they're not trusting God, like because there's
0: so much evidence. So, so the question simply is this: How about if um, the, there's a there's a whole section of a society that has been infected with anthrax? Okay, and anthrax is deadly, but anthrax is quite treatable by certain antibiotics like ciprofloxacin. And the common name it's it's sold under the brand name Cipro. And how about if people have been told that cipro is poison, and so all the people in this world, that in this section of the world who are infected with anthrax, believe cipro is poison and they won't take it? But you bring a generic drug called ciprofloxacin, and they are perfectly happy to take ciprofloxacin, but they don't believe a thing about cipro. They think it's poison. They won't touch cipro, but they will take ciprofloxacin <laughs> because they think cipro is poison. What will happen when they take ciprofloxacin? They're still going to get well, aren't they? Okay, so there are many people who have ideas about Jesus, brand name, Jesus Christ, that have been told to them that make him out by the church because they saw a whole bunch of people with red crosses on their tunics marching in with swords to kill their family in the Crusades. Because they were people with white hoods on burning crosses in the black man's yard and burning their house down. And they go... If that's Christianity, if that's what Jesus Christ does, I don't want anything to do with them. So they reject Christianity, right? Verse based on this the brand name, the name Jesus is associated with something that's ugly. So they don't accept it. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's divine nature, what's the nature of God? God is love, has, seen, has been seen, has been clearly seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. That's chapter one. And then he goes down in chapter two because there's no chapter divisions in what he wrote. Just a little farther later, he says that in chapter two, verse 12, those who do not know the law, which is scripture, Torah, but do by nature, the things contained in the law show that the law has been written on their heart, their conscience bearing witness. Now, what's the new covenant experience in Hebrews chapter 10? I will write my law. So these are people who have been reborn and reconverted and had the law, what law, the Ten Commandments or the law of love, the methods of other-centeredness. So they've they've been reborn and transformed, having partaken of the remedy of Jesus Christ, they're getting the character of Christ via the work of the Holy Spirit in them, because they trust in the principles of god and not... so the
2: trust is in the principles of god yes. not necessarily cuz that's what that's what throws me off it's like if it if they're being the holy spirit is coming through them and they're loving other people but they still don't have that relationship with god because they don't know, you know what I mean. So. so
0: they're partaking of those principles of God. Ellen White describes this desire of ages about the heathen who's never heard the uh, the gospel brought to them by human instrumentality, but respond to the Spirit as it's seen in nature and become other-centered and loving are considered children of God, and they will not be lost. Because why? How? And how are they saved? They are still saved through what Jesus Christ did. So if you have an antibiotic. And you take it and give it to people, and they don't understand it, they don't comprehend it, they can't even call out the name of it, they still benefit from partaking of it.
2: As long as, I guess, their hearts, and we can't know this, but I I guess it would be they either do things out of a pure heart of love and not expect anything in return, as opposed to doing wonderful things, but, like, I'm all bad.
0: And what you just described has no bearing on whether they're Christian or non-Christian. There are many Christians who do just that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so called Christians.
3: Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Yes, Ben. Well One of the ways I've reconciled that has been, you know, whenever an author writes a book, he wants to leave the, chapter, the last book with, you know, the power punch. In and, and Revelation, he leaves the book with, um, you know, God kind of leaves this bundle with, whoever is righteous still, let him, whoever is wicked, let him be wicked still. Whoever is good, let him be good still. And it's just... Question of character, and it's not like you know. Oh, that's works. You can do it by works. It's no. It's it's understanding the way reality works, the way design works. And Paul is talking about this um, this uh, Gentile people that don't believe in the Torah law, but within their hearts, it's become a law to themselves, where they don't know Jesus. But with this moral compass, I mean... But
0: they see the principles of love as revealed in nature and other-centeredness, and the Holy Spirit enlightens their mind to those principles, and thus they have the law written on their heart because they become self-sacrificial rather than survival of the fittest rhythm. And that is the root. It's not having a a proper declaration in some legal fashion or going through a certain ritual. It's about having the baptism of the Holy Spirit where yourself is immersed under truth, love, and freedom, not having a ritual in water.
2: I guess I put so much emphasis on my own relationship with Jesus it 's hard for me to you know wonder like because there is so much emphasis on the trust, the trust Abraham believed God, and it was him for righteousness. I have such a relationship with God, and I struggle with that, and my struggle is trying to believe a good God is God good, is he love so you know i mean i 'm still
0: so- yeah, that 's because you have the disadvantage that 's because you have the disadvantage of coming out of a Christian home. <laughs> Jesus said to the leaders of the church of his day, you search the world for a convert, and when you find him, you make him twice the son of hell as before. Okay, And so you know when we are indoctrinated in certain ways of thinking, those certain ways of thinking make it harder to see the beauty of God's character. The Samaritans, when Jesus went to preach to them, they begged him to stay. Many of the Jews tried to drive him out of the city okay, because he didn't meet their expectations. So our preconceived ideas and expectations often make it harder to see the beauty of God than some people who've never had those biases. Yes?
1: If all good things come from God, is it possible for an atheist to show love mm-hmm. to the fellow man?
0: Yes, absolutely. So, so the healthiest position neurobiologically. The healthiest mind, belief system, philosophical worldview to have is the belief in a benevolent, other-centered God construct as re- like revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. If you hold that belief and worship that kind of God, that is physiologically and neurobiologically healthiest for you. However, the next healthiest view to have is to believe in no God. And the worst view to have is to actually believe in God, but believe the God that you believe in is an angry, wrathful, punishing God who is the source of inflicted pain and suffering from whom you must be protected. This is the worst view to have. This incites the, worst, the most amount of fear, the most amount of insecurity, and causes the most harm in society. So it is much better to believe that there's no God than to believe that God is a, uh, like Nero with all power. That's worse. Uh, if you want a a quote that kind of talks about that philosophically from Ellen White she says that the the, uh, um, teaching of eternal burning hell um, has done more to turn people away from God than any other doctrine and dethrones human reason dethrones it why does it dethrone it because it's not reasonable to believe that God is a God of love and he will torture you in hell forever it is nonsense you wouldn't do that to the, your, your worst enemy. You really wouldn't. You may, you may think you would, but I promise you, after, you, you probably couldn't take an hour of sit, hearing somebody screaming and agonizing pain and, and, and just stand there and listen to it. Even if it was your worst enemy, you would put an end to it. So this, this dethrones human reason. It's unreasonable. And so people, what's a dethroned human reason look like? I just take that on faith. I just believe. I don't ask questions. I I just know somehow it's got to be good. That's dethroned. We've shut it off. And then once you dethrone reason, you have shut down the avenue through which God approaches through his spirit. Because the spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And one of the avenues he approaches us is the avenue of truth. But if you're not willing to evaluate and think and reason, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. If, you're, if you've already shut that down, well, I just take that on faith. I don't ask questions. If the Bible says that I believe it, I, I, I'm, this is what I've always been told. Who, who am I to question God? His ways are higher than my ways. Then the avenue for truth to penetrate and help me advance and grow is shut down. So we believe Christ achieved the remedy to our sinful condition singly and alone, without any help from any sinner or any human institution. Human institution did not help Christ. He is the head of the human family, the head of the human species, the second Adam. Thus, in the person of Jesus, humanity is restored to its right place in God's universe, and Christ stands in the place where Adam was originally supposed to stand in God's heavenly councils. He stands that place representing humanity. This is the justification of the setting right of the species human. But in doing this he also achieved the remedy that's necessary for every sinful human being so that we can be restored to God's original design, transformed and eternally saved. But before eternal healing happens, before internal healing happens, the sinner must, here's the must, here's the here's the hurdle you have to get over to be saved. You have to trust God. And that means trusting the principles of God if you have never had the story of his individuality told to you. That these principles are the principles of health and life. And then when you trust God, you open the heart and the spirit really regenerates. So I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. This is Christ Object Lessons 3.11. The robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. Christ, notice, not one thread of human. We didn't do any. The robe is a metaphor for the righteousness of Christ. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character. Wait a second. Was he not born with a perfect character? No. no, he was not. Get your mind around this. He was sinless. Sinless. yes. But character cannot be created. The divine being, God, creates sinless beings. Adam and Eve were created sinless. But character is formed by the exercise of the sentient being. That has to be developed by choice. So uh, Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commands that's not Protestant Reformation. That's not true. Protestant Reformation, I read it to you from Luther's own words, that you will not obey, you will sin, but be declared that you're sinless even though you continue to sin. There's no obedience. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Now, does that sound like a covering over? The penal view of justification by faith and the metaphor of the robe of righteousness is that when the father looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of a son like a robe covering us. And thus, his eyes cannot penetrate through that righteous robe. And he cannot see how wicked we really are in our course. That's the traditional penal view. It's the candy-coated rotten apple theory. It's a lie. The true view is that when you're set right in trust, that you become an actual partaker. The Holy Spirit comes in and you get new motives, new desires, new, new longings in your heart. And it doesn't mean you may not stumble. It doesn't mean you may not make a mistake. But the converted person who has the new longings, when you make the mistake, you're sick. I hate it this way. I'm so weak. Oh, what a wretched man am I. Who will save me from this body of death? I don't want to be this way. Your heart has a heart that desires something so much better. Even though you might be physically weak, you might have old habit patterns, you might have conditioned responses, you might have neural pathways from years of living in a sinful life pattern that you still at times find responding in certain ways very quickly, you are still a reborn person with a heart that hates being that way and longs to have new patterns. Like David. Like David, that's exactly right. This one, this is out of uh, 1SAT, I can't remember what that abbreviation is for. 1SAT 237. We want parents to awake from their lethargic sleep. Awake and see that at this time you must put on the beautiful robe of Christ's righteousness. Now get these next words. The righteousness of God never covers the soul polluted with sin. <laughs> this is a complete refutation of what it's taught at the local university. It's a complete refutation. It's in diametrically opposite. I had meetings with their theology professors. And their position is when you accept Jesus, he declares you to be righteous even though you're not. Your sins are covered by the righteousness of Christ. Yes.
2: They base it on works, though, right?
0: No, no. They base it on a legal declaration. Uh, because Christ took your sins. He paid. He, he was punished in your place at the cross. And when you accept him in the courts of heaven, God declares that you are now legally righteous, even though inside you are not. But in the guise of the court, the court only sees Jesus standing there. He doesn't see wicked you. You're still just as wicked, but you're declared not to be wicked.
2: Which would make Jesus
0: a liar. Well, it makes the father a liar. That's right. And I said that to them, and they got really upset at me.
1: Did you quote this?
0: I didn't have this quote at the time. Uh, I just found this one this week, but I had some of these others. Faith I live by, page one eleven. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which he is not in, which it is not in his power to do for himself. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that the truth should be so clearly presented for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. If you receive it fully. Now I I really like this quote because it really ties together the idea of just justice justify this next one. I've read it probably a hundred times in this class. So, some of you hopefully have memorized and, can, and say it by memory now. But this is Desire of Ages 762. The law requires. It depends on. Uh, the law requires that sin be carried to punishment. The law requires a legal payment. It, the law requires righteousness. A righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men, standing in that place as the head of all humanity. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Did you hear anything legal happening here? This was regenerational. This was fixing what's broken. This is setting what's right that wasn't in harmony with how God built it to be. Christ is the means and mechanism through which God could fix what sin had done to the species human. And through Christ, we can all partake of that fix and be restored ourselves. I'm going to move on. I have several more quotes in there in the lesson. Sunday's lesson... (laughs) Second paragraph, it says, these people believe that the law was able to give them spiritual life. Their views probably arose out of a mistaken interpretation of Old Testament passages of Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 6.24, in which the law directs how life should be lived by those abiding in God's covenant. The law did regulate life within the covenant, but they concluded that the law was the source of a person's relation with God. The Bible is clear, however, that the ability to make alive is the power exercised by God and his spirit alone. The law cannot make anyone alive spiritually. What do you think about that last sentence? The law cannot make anyone alive spiritually. Can the law make someone alive physically? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, this idea that they kind of separate out. Can the law make someone alive in any way? No. no. All. It, 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 any of them. The, the law itself doesn't make anyone alive, life doesn't come from the law. We, we we sustain and continue in life in harmony with the law, yeah, with the, with design law. But the law is not the source of the life.
2: But the law is love, and Christ is love.
0: Right, but the lo- the life comes from who has life original, unborrowed, underived. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Life comes from God. That's correct. What's this idea though of being dead spiritually? What does it mean to be dead spiritually? A slave to the law? I like that idea. It might have some really good insights on that. Your heart. Your heart. I like where you're going with that. Your heart. So I, I found this in review, review and Herald, July 10, 1879. As a people, we are backsliding from God. The hearts of his professed children are being estranged from him. While they have a name to live, the true vital energies of the soul have become spiritually dead. The true vital energies of the soul become... Hmm. Well, here's uh, Signs of the Time, June 24, 1886. Those are spiritually dead who profess to worship God while the heart is not in the work. You profess to worship God when your heart is not in it, you're spiritually dead. According to this author. What is the heart? Is it the pump inside your chest? Move up a foot. Move up a foot. Well, in my new book, The god Shape Part, I have an entire section differentiating the brain, the mind, and the heart. The brain is not the mind, the mind is not the heart, but the heart is a subsection of the mind. Very, very briefly, the brain would be analogous to a computer's hardware, the machine. The mind would be analogous to a computer's software. Everyone in this room has an English software package. English is not genetically pre-programmed into you. If you were adopted at birth to a family in Germany, you would have grew up speaking German. It was uploaded after birth. But it it is such a deep part of you. When was the last time you got up in the morning and said, today I'm going to think in English? (laughs) You never make the decision. It's always on. Everything gets filtered through it. And you see the world differently than if you have a different language. That language is part of your mind, part of your software, but it is not part of your heart. Your heart, though, is your core individuality, your identity that makes you your unique person. Your loves, your aspirations, your deep um, values and wishes. This is your heart. You can have truth in your heart. You can have lies in your heart. Now, lies can operate in your mind. They can operate in your heart. The ones operating in your heart are much more destructive than the ones operating in your mind, but they're both destructive. Here's a lie operating in your mind. You've been told a lie that uh, your next-door neighbor stole, broke into your house and stole your stereo, and you go home and the stereo's not there. Now, that's a lie in your mind. It's in your environment. It's the beliefs you hold about the world around you. You will take actions. Or another lie. You've been told a lie that, uh, that you, your, your child has been molested by your brother. It's not true. It's a lie in the world around you. Think about all the consequences you might take based on if you believe that lie. All the things you might do, all the dev- all the personal first a- heart racing, stress hormones, anger, frustration, hostility, and all the calls and fo- and the fracturing in your relationships, all the problems you could have from that lie, very very devastating. Still, but they're still not as devastating as the lies that make it into the heart. What are the lies in the heart? I'm no good. I'm ugly. I'm worthless. I'm I'm a sinner beyond salvation. Nobody likes me. I can't do anything right. Lies on the that, that form your core sense of self could be another type of lie. I'm righteous, I'm holy, I am so right with God, people should just probably almost worship me. (laughs) The Laodicean description, you read the Laodicean description, they are filled and holy and righteous and they don't need anything. This is a lie in the core self about how they see themselves. These lies are very destructive. And so we have the heart is your core sense of self, your individual, your character. This is your heart. But your heart can't think, so isn't it going to steal your mind? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks.
3: Your pumping heart. The heart
0: they no, no, we're not talking about the pump. Uh-huh. It's, it's the, the heart we're talking about is not your pump. The pump in the chest is got the same... This is why people get confused, because they often think the pump in the chest. We were not talking about the pump in the chest. Three That's right. Yeah it's, it's three, yeah, it's... The heart is what? It's, it's a subsection of your mind.
1: Yeah, it's the part that connects you with God.
0: It's a subsection of your mind which operates on the template of your brain. So
1: it's still the brain? It's still the brain?
0: It's not the brain. Okay, do you, do, you, do you have a computer? Yes. Do you have Windows or Apple? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, you have, an op- you have a Mac. Do you have any little programs you use?
3: I'm sure we do. You're sure we do? Okay. You asked the wrong question. Okay. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, the, the the hardware, the machine, is not the same thing as the programming on the machine. Do you have pictures on your computer yes. that you can look at of your family? Yes. Okay, those pictures on your computer are not part of the machine. They can be transferred to another machine. They can be deleted off the machine. The machine itself is not the pictures, and the pictures are not the machine. They're programming that have been uploaded onto the machine. Okay, your brain is the machine. It's the hardware. The language you speak English is a operating system, a, a software package that got uploaded and it now resides on the hardware, but the hardware didn't determine that you would speak English. You were not genetically pre-programmed to speak English. If you'd have been adopted at birth and, again, raised somewhere else, you'd speak another language. But it it requires the hardware for it to be assimilated and uploaded. Okay? Yes, Russell. The, the line that all our sins, past, present, and future relate on Christ at the cross and we don't have, you know, we just accept that payment Is that a a lie of the mind or is that a lie of the heart or is it some of both? So lies can go both places. That lie, I, is, to me, is a lie of the mind. It's a lie of how uh, we believe reality works, but then it could de- develop. It could develop and form lies in the heart. Therefore, I am, I am perfectly safe and secure in my sin because of the lie that I believe happened 2,000 years ago.
1: Okay. It's a lie on top of a lie. Mm-hmm.
0: So, to be spiritually dead is to have the right facts about God. To be spiritually dead, have the right facts about God or about certain doctrines. Which day of the week is the Sabbath? How do you get baptized? Uh, how much tithes should you pay? You understand the facts. You can say the 66 books forward and backwards in, in order without making a mistake. Um, but to have a heart that has not been renewed to love God and others more than self, your heart still d- operates on me first principles. You're spiritually dead your heart has not been renewed. Even though you may have gone through baptism, even though you may have taken a position, position working for the church institution and get a paycheck from the church, if your heart has not been renewed, you're spiritually dead. Does everybody agree with me on that? So, and then I'll read this March. Uh, this is Review and Herald, March 12, 1901. To arouse those spiritually dead, to create new tastes, new motives, requires as great an outlay of power as to raise one from physical death. It is indeed giving life to the dead to convert the sinner from the error of his ways, but our Deliverer is able to do this, for he came to destroy the works of the enemy. That's, ooh, just give me chills. That's profound. Okay, so Monday, um, what does it mean to be kept under the written law? In fact, I think I'm going to skip to Wednesday. You can just kind of look that up. There's some quotes there, and we'll skip Tuesday, and we'll go to Wednesday. Third paragraph in Wednesday's lesson, it says, um, Paul's description of the law as a pedagogue further clarifies his understanding of the role of the law. The law was added to point out sin and provide instruction. The very nature of this task means that the law also has a negative aspect, and that's because it rebukes and condemns us as sinners, yet... God uses this negative aspect for our benefit because it can. the condemnation that the law brings is what drives us to Christ. Thus the law and the gospel are not contradictory. God designed them to work together for our salvation. Did anyone besides me have a problem with this passage? It
1: all is based on their paradigm, where they're coming from. Thank you. You wouldn't say an MRI scanner. And its results are bad.
0: Thank you. So... This is diagnostic, what I was about to say, of the minds of the people who wrote this. it read, From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good man brings forth good. This is telling you that they're operating on a human law construct, which Paul says in Hebrews 5, if you're at this level, you are not, this is a quote from Hebrews now, not me, you are not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. They're trying to teach us about righteousness by faith. But if you have this model, you're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but they're the teachers. This is why there is a form of godliness but no power because people are claiming righteousness in some legal setting where they're declared to be righteous but they're not righteous. So the law, does the law have a negative aspect, anybody? No. And you're right, I love the example of the MRI. Why was the law added, by the way? But Hey, why did Adam Adam run and hide from God, by the way? Why did he run and hide from God? Did Did he do it before or after the law at Sinai? Before. Before the law was given at Sinai. He's running and hiding from God. And was he experiencing condemnation? Yes. But the law hadn't been given yet. How can he be condemned if the law hasn't been given yet? Because the law, according to this, condemns us, which makes us then in fear go to God. But in fact, when you're under condemnation, condemnation actually causes you to go where? To run and hide from God. This is why we still don't have transformation because they're teaching that it's a good thing that the law condemns you when you feel like you should be punished and you feel shameful and you feel guilty. That's a good thing. But what that thing leads you to do is leads you to run and hide from God. And that while you're running and hiding from God, you're sowing your fig leaves. So when he finds you, you won't be naked. And what are your fig leaves? Well, I've got the payment made. I've got the robe I'm going to claim that, so he can't see me. I've got the blood covering me so when the Father looks at me, he can't see my sin. Uh, uh, you know, I've got my advocate standing between me and him so he can't get near me. I'm, I'm putting all these obstacles in the way of me and him because I'm under condemnation. This is what they're teaching. It's corrupt. Well, if you believe God's unsure, why wouldn't you run away from him? But was Adam under condemnation is the point? Self-condemnation. Was he under condemnation? Not yes. under condemnation. Was he under condemnation? Yes, he was. Not. I didn't say that. I said, was he experiencing condemnation? Yes any, and, and the point is, where was the condemnation coming from? Cess. His condition. His changed condition. You're right it wasn't coming from God. You're right it wasn't coming from a written law. So if the changed condition of sinfulness brings this sense of shame, this sense of guilt, the sense of condemnation, why then did God give the written law all those years later? Why? Because? What does sin do to the sinner?
3: It destroys it the heart
0: of the heart. Ah, so what happens when we persist in sin, it's like leprosy. That's the metaphor of leprosy. Leprosy takes away your sensitivity. You don't feel pain. You don't get, and so you can commit sin without guilt. You can commit sin without... Your heart Your heart becomes hardened. Your conscience becomes seared. You become so warped. You don't even know right from wrong anymore. You don't feel any guilt and shame. You can actually stand out in public and do lewd things and think it's really cool. You can get drunk and get naked in a bar and think if it's really like the coolest thing. Because your conscience is so warped. And so this is where they were after slavery. And so God, because it's no longer be written on their heart, because their consciences are so seared, they have no capacity to discern right from wrong, he gives them a diagnostic instrument, the MRI of the soul, the Ten Commandments. And then, as, as Wendell was saying, if you go into an MRI and the MRI finds a tumor, is this a negative aspect of the MRI? I really wish it would have just ignored that tumor is this a negative aspect of the mri to find the tumor or is the is the mri a beautiful thing because it finds the tumor so that you can be healed healed. there is no negative aspect to the law none no negative aspect it's negative because they live under a penal view and under a penal view the law condemns you to be punished that's not good under the design view the law exposes what's wrong so you can be healed it is so corrupt when when are we as Christians going to stand up and tell our leaders we're not taking it anymore? That we're just not listening to it. We don't want you to be our pastor if you're going to lie this way.
1: When you first learned this truth, didn't didn't you wrestle with it? And I, I know that I did. And um,
0: depends on what you mean by wrestle with it. Do well, you? I,
1: I wrestled hard with this truth. I mean I fought tooth and nail to uh, um, to come across, to oppose it because of the ingrowing. Of the truth that that I've been taught as a Christian, a young Christian. So, So what are we not to expect? I mean, we we expect that the university and those around us that don't know this truth are going to have this truth. The question really comes as we have experienced that true love relationship with God is how we can reveal this truth. And it's obviously, you know, um, I I think of the people that I converted, been involved with in conversions that were Catholics. And we taught in the Adventist view. And that was a very disrupting event for a Catholic to car- cross over to, a, to an Adventist, probably just as much as a seventh Adventist to cross over to this mindset. So, you know, the the thought process I have is, what can we do?
0: I'm going to have to take a little concern with what you said there, because I think most of us in this room identify ourselves as Adventists. I know. So we're not crossing over, and and frankly, when you cross over this view, you can have this view of God and be a Methodist, and be a Catholic, and be a Baptist, and be an Adventist. This view of God is a view for all humanity, because all nations, kindred, tribes, and people are coming under one head of this view. So it's not a sectarian view. It's not a view that... requires you to leave your denominational affiliation. It's a view that requires you to leave your fear of God behind in a loving trust relationship with him so that you are exactly what you're saying, carrying out love in the way we treat others. And just to connect back to the one thing of the lesson, it said that this shame and guilt leads us to God. No, Hebrew, uh, excuse me, Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And so Adam's under condemnation and shame and he's hiding and he's sowing his fig leaves and God is kind. Adam, who said? Who said you were naked? You didn't hear it from me. I'm not pointing out your defects. I'm not criticizing. Adam, I'm your friend. I'm here to help you. that That's coming from your own conscience, Adam.
1: I guess what I'm trying to say, though, is that, you know, we, we talk about the university not understanding the view that we have, and that we, we you know, we, in a way, identify in almost in a... Not a mockery, but the uh, but you know we clearly state what are they teaching? It's heresy, basically, we, and it's clear it is. But they don't know that. <clears throat>
0: you know, some of them do. Well, some not all of them, but some yeah, of the them do. Those
1: that you say to do may have a level mindset that's down near the four or five, and as you clearly stated before, that we can't go past one step at a time. So my thought is, is as we as we understand understand and recognize this love concept, this benevolent mindset that what can we do to bring those
0: so my view is that we don't go to the Sanhedrin Christ did not go to the Sanhedrin and try to convert them he went to the people that's what we do, we go to the people so go to your churches, go, go to your f- communities go to your friends and, and when a certain number of people in the body of this local congregation come to, to this then that body goes to their pastor and say we're not happy with this You and here's why, And we begin to have conversations together but I, I, don't go, I don't think we should go to the Sanhedrin, the, the people who live in the, in the mindset of running organizational systems. Because organizational systems all operate at level four. That's how they operate. And, and if you look at the... And we don't have time to go into it today. But those who operate at level four, floor organizational systems, always sacrifice people to protect the systems. Better for one man to die than the nation... Let's move this priest, then, to protect the children. Let's uh, just quietly get rid of this teacher rather than to protect the children. Let's disfellowship this person who divorced her spouse-abusing husband because he didn't have sex with somebody else and she she can't work for our institution. Let's sacrifice souls to protect the institution when you're level four. I I don't think we're going to get much traction when their mindset is institutional protection. So I don't go to institutional leaders anymore. But I do think as a congregation, a congregation of people who has come to a point to say this can sit down in a loving relationship with their pastor and say, Pastor, we're very disturbed by the things you're saying, and here's why. Let's have a conversation. I agree with that. Yeah. Closing comment.
2: It takes a lot to deprogram the brainwashing.
0: It does. So I'm not suggesting, don't walk out here suggesting I'm promoting some type of uprising or rebellion or anything like that. <laughs> uh, I'm not promoting anything like that. <laughs> I am promoting loving conversations with people to lead them in a different way, to help them see a different way for those who are open. But there will be some that you will have to cast the dust off your feet and move in a different direction. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and, and that you have sent Jesus Christ to achieve what we could never achieve, perfection of the human species. And Jesus achieved it, Lord. And he's revealed truth about your kindness, your graciousness, your methods and character, your designs of love and truth and freedom. And Lord, our hearts long for that. We ask that your spirit will come down, take what Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer our old, selfish, fear-based guilt-based selves operating we have a new heart right spirit that loves you and loves others free from all that stuff of the past we pray in your holy name amen